And welcome back to Mars at Movies, the show where we don't talk smack about movies, we celebrate them. Except on the rare occasions where we do talk smack about movies, which is very rare because oftentimes we have positive things to say. Does that make any sense? I don't know, we're just rolling with it. Yeah, that, that seems accurate. Indeed, and today we saw a movie that once again we won't talk much smack about. Well, we might, we might have some opposing uh, opinions at a few parts. But in any case, what I think we can both agree on is the movie we saw today certainly gives you the feels. And that movie is, of course, Fate's Day Night Heaven's Feel, Part 2, Lost Butterfly. Yeah, it definitely is uh, accurate in its name. In, in Which many, part of its name? The, the feels. I guess so. Yes, yes. You definitely feel some emotions. You definitely get a lot of feelings watching this movie. Very uncomfortable feelings at times. Yeah, I mean, that's to be expected from uh, this route. Yes, those who do not know anything about this route or this story, like myself, will be caught very off guard by some of the things that happen in this. It's definitely the much darker fate story than I have experienced before, even... Compared to Fate Zero, there's some very dark stuff in this and uh, some very uncomfortable stuff that I don't think it necessarily handles well in particular when it comes to the character of Sakura and sexual assault and rape that is done to her. Yeah, I mean, I guess we should probably get into that a bit later, but uh, I guess, where, where do you want to start? The theater experience? Once again, it is time to start off with our theater experience. First off, I want to say that it's quite nice that we only have to wait like two months after the Japanese release for this movie in comparison to the first film where it was, what, half a year? Much more than that, yeah, right? I feel like An Anaplex has gotten a lot better at making sure these movies are getting out into the U.S. a lot quicker and to a wider audience. Like, I remember when the... Kizumonogatari movies were coming out over here. Like, in the Midwest especially, I knew, like, the nearest place to Minnesota that was showing it was, like, Michigan or Wisconsin. Wow. Yeah, so, like, they've definitely expanded the number of theaters they're covering now with these screenings. It definitely doubled, because the first film was only in about 245 theaters, I think. Whereas this film was in about 550-ish theaters. Yeah, I mean, I think it did pretty well. Like, I forget. I know they just put out the sales numbers. It was like... Yeah, we can look them up right now. I believe it earned about 400 grand in its one-night-only showing. Yeah, I... I knew it was like 400 something, but I didn't want to say million because it definitely didn't sound like 400 million. But yeah, 400 grand sounds accurate. <laughs> 400 million. Yeah, I was, I was thinking that first time. like 30 million. Yeah, I'm like, wait, that wouldn't make sense. It earned 420,000, not $595. Yeah, so that's pretty good for the scope that it had and for a single day. Yeah, it's about an $800 per theater average. Yeah, that's really nice. So yeah, I guess it's safe to say that we are definitely going to get a. Uh, Heaven's Field 3 in the U.S. Most definitely. In fact, I also think we might get a dub theatrical screening of this film as well. Oh yeah, we, we got that for the first one, so I expect that we'll get the same for this as well. Especially since it performed even better than the first one. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely a good sign. I mean, another nice thing about it being in so many theaters is that we got to see it at an AMC instead of a... Marcus Cinema, which we'd have to drive like a half hour to get to. Yeah. The theater we saw this in was only around a 15 or so minute drive. Yeah. Like, and there was one that was showing even closer to, I guess, on your end. Yeah, like, I was it was my... showing at our local AMC. We didn't go to that because 
Wheelord was driving back from work, so it was closer for us to go to Southdale, but even so, the fact that it was playing at our local theater, and if we had both been home, we'd have only had to drive like 10 minutes to get there, that's pretty nice compared to the first one, which again, when you have to go see a film of the Marcus Oakdale, that is at minimum a half an hour drive. Yeah. And with traffic often 40 to 50. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, Marcus theaters are good and all, but it's kind of nice to be at a closer theater. Yeah, especially since we have AMC memberships, so we don't have to pay convenience fees for buying tickets online. We get points back when we buy concessions, all that. It's very convenient. Also, they have good seating. Yeah. As far as seating goes, we got good seats in, like, D-Row, which is our preferred seats. Pretty close to the screen, but not too close that it becomes overwhelming. And the theater was pretty full up, I would say. Yeah, basically everything besides, like, the super close rows were filled up. Mostly teens and 20-somethings. Uh, definitely an overwhelming male audience. For better or worse. Yeah, mostly worse. Yeah, I would say mostly worse. Especially, again, when it comes to certain scenes of all in Sakura that I don't think the film did well. Yeah, what else do you want to cover before we get into that, though? That was basically the theater experience. Aside from that, we didn't talk about the first Fate film on this box before, so just to recap my thoughts on that, I have no experience with the visual novel, and I don't know how the story of the Fate route goes. I mean, <laughs> the story of how the Heaven's Feel route goes. In fact, I don't really know the Fate route either. I only know the Unlimited Blade works through because of the anime, and I've watched Fate Zero, and then I've watched a bunch of Fate spin-off stuff, but this is my first time experience the Heavensfield story, which Fate fans like Wheelord have told me is the best of the three roots from the original novel, and so I had Iotra, and I enjoyed that first film well enough, and certainly, you know, it had that bold ending to it where Saber is plunged into the darkness that becomes evil saber and all that. You mean saber altar? Yeah, saber altar. It's evil saber. What it you... is evil saber, but saber altar, that's the official name. Sure, there's so many sabers, though. Everyone's a saber. Okita Soji's a saber, apparently. And she looks just like real saber. Saber's son is also a daughter who also looks like saber. Can we just get a Saber Force series? And it's like... Saber's daughter, but she's Saber is her father because I don't know. <laughs> Wait, what? That's what I've heard. Let's just make Saber Force just like an entire squad of Sabers as they go on and fight like evil monsters. Yeah, there's gotta be a fate into the Saberverse at some point. <laughs> they gotta make that film at some point where it's just all the Sabers team up. But, no, there's only one Saber in the Heavensfield story, and it's very bold because Saber is very quickly detached from Shiro. He no longer has Saber as a servant, so now Saber... So that's really cool for Shiro, because now, very early on in the story, he doesn't have a servant, he's pretty powerless, so he has to start fighting on his own. And that's a huge part of his character arc, in that... We, he's still emboldened to do the right thing and put an end to this even without Saber. In fact, it makes him even more determined. And I thought that one thing I really like about this film and really like about this story is this is probably the most I've ever liked Shiro as a character. Especially coming off of Unlimited Blade Works and how he was just an idealist that was unchallenged and there was three episodes Which of him is... just talking to Archer about... Just because you're right doesn't mean that you are right or something like it's that. It's just because uh just because you're not wrong doesn't mean you're correct. Yeah, exactly. And people die when they are killed or something like that. You know, all <laughs> sorts of nonsense that we're like, Oh, just shut up, you But no, I actually really like I was really invested in Shiro and his moral quandaries and his struggle in this film. Because Shiro is still trying to do the right thing, but he has this complex where he's constantly worried and he is anxious whether he has the power to do that. So he has made the promise to Sakura that he will protect her, he will be her hero, but then over the course of the film he becomes increasingly worried that he will not be able to live up to those words, to his own ideals, 
and it pushes him to some real dark places, which I really appreciated. I thought this film was a great exploration in the development of Shiro, and I like him best in this interpretation more than I did in the Unlimited Blade Works movie. It's so weird, too, because you'd think in Unlimited Blade Works, when he's literally fighting himself, his ideals would be challenged. But no, it's the one where he has to, like, be on his own and make tough choices where he's finally properly challenged. Yeah, I mean, he doesn't even realize that Archer is his future self in this story. Like, it it, it definitely makes you assume that you've seen Unlimited Blade Works, because otherwise... I'd imagine someone watching this film without any context is like, why is Archer cutting off his arm? What does he think this is going to do? What does he mean if Shiro dies, he'll die? Well, what is all this? I'm so confused! Yeah, I mean, the film presupposes you know the other two roots. You know these characters from a previous version of the story already. Because there's already so many nods. Two things that you're just supposed to get immediately. Yeah, like when, like when, uh, I, I, when like, uh, Shiro asks Ilya if he, he, she knows Kiritsugo and she has that reaction where she's like, no, I don't know him, but you know, you know that there's something more there. You are supposed to already know that she knows and she has this whole big resentment and complex about her father and Shiro and all that stuff. So you're supposed to know that. You're supposed to know what uh, Koto Mine's deal is and why he can't be trusted. You're supposed to know who uh, Gilgamesh is. Yeah. Like, this is the one thing. This film finally pays off on that one scene you always see in the prologue of Gilgamesh talking to Sakura. Yeah. It's never addressed in any of the other routes except this one. I mean, this is the only route where I it really goes anywhere, probably, because it, it ends in his death, and the other routes, like, what does it amount to? I mean, in the fate route, Gilgamesh teams up with Kire at the end, and they're the final villains, and, and then in Unlimited Blade Works, he's, he's the also final the final villain, villain but he's solo, because Because he betrays Kire. So, yeah. And Sakura's not involved, really, in those, so, like, you never No, in the Unlimited Braid works, and this is one of the reasons I was disappointed with it, is that very early on, Sakura is pretty much out, irrelevant to the rest of that story. And then coming off of Fate Zero, if you're first exposed to that, you're like, oh, this whole setup with this character of Sakura, you know, you'd think that'll go somewhere in all of these stories, but it only really goes somewhere in this version. I feel like so many of the plot lines from Heaven Zero are... Or no, why did I say Heaven Zero? Fate Zero are really only addressed in Heaven's feel. Yeah. Like, I think that's because a lot of... Uh, the Heaven's feel, a, a lot of it's about exposing the truth, the real secrets of the Holy Grail War. Yeah, I mean, you're supposed to play these routes in order. You do the Fate route first, then Unlimited Blade Works, and then you go to Heaven's Feel, and yeah. you learn more about the characters and the lore, and everything that's really going on by playing your routes. And Heaven's Feel is the conclusion route, so it tells you the most, and it is the most well-informed, and it ties uh, and pays off everything. Yeah, that's accurate. Like, the Fate route very much was kind of about Shiro's idealism and, like, Saber coming to terms with herself after, like, what happened in the events of the previous Grail War, and then, like, of course, Lemonade Blade Works is, like, Shiro literally fighting himself, and then everything with Rin, understanding Rin as a character, and then Heaven's Feel is everything else. It's the main meat of what you want if you've experienced Fate Zero. Yeah, and characters that were important in other parts are very diminished in this version, but that's fine because I don't think they were the most important yeah. for the story. Like, I feel... Like, Gilgamesh, he was the villain in Unlimited Blade Works. Here, he's just there to give Sakura kind of an energy power-up <laughs> and die in a really funny way, where he gets, oh. like, eaten alive and he just has one leg left standing. And this is a great scene where he's like, oh, Sakura eats his leg and he's like, you dare to make a meal? And he shoots her full of swords. And then, of course, Sakura, like, regenerates into this big monster and then eats the entire rest of his body, leaving the one leg that he, he hadn't eaten yet. So that was great. That, 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 was that entire great. thing before that, too, was so messed up where, like, she's in the dreamland and, like, popping all these animals and then getting the candy out of them. 
Yeah. And then you learn that the candy's literally just their body parts, and it's... It's very dark. Sakura has this fluffy fantasy, because she's spending time with Shiro, and she's so happy, she thinks, oh, this is gonna go forever. She has this nice dream fantasy with stuffed animals, who very quickly become creepy, as this dreamland, and she goes into this place that has a bunch of mirrors, and you know something's off, and then she starts, like, killing these creatures to eat the candy, and then you cut back to reality, and, oh, she's killing a bunch of people and eating their flesh. Yeah. It's messed up. It is quite gruesome. Everything involving Sakura's character, which is the central focus of the film in this arc story, is really the darkest material in this entire franchise, I guess. Yeah. Like, really, I feel like this arc, out of, like, our main... Shiro and, like, our main heroines, it does the best job of really challenging them. Except for Rin. I feel Rin... Rin, unfortunately, is the one I feel gets the biggest shaft in this route. Because well, she's there, she but was she's the like... heroine of the last route, so that yeah. was her time to shine. Like, both Saber and Rin don't really get much in this route, right? I mean, Saber had her old thing at the end of the last movie where it's like, she is questioning her identity and lamenting powerlessness or whatever, and then she gives into the darkness inside her or whatever. And then she's going to save her altar. But, yeah, Rin is just here to be an ally and yeah. someone who... Th- this route is very much about Sakura than on a lesser sent Ilya, I feel. Because, like, I'm not sure if you know this, but initially there was supposed to be an Ilya route in the original visual novel, and then that was scrapped. It's very clear that they merged those ideas so yeah. that the, both Sakura and Ilya would be kind of like dual heroines, like they both have things going on. But Sakura is definitely more emphasized. Ilya is more like the secretive character who knows more than she's letting on, and she's going to be a big MacGuffin. But it's not like it's her story, but she is definitely playing a part in Shiro's development as well. Yeah. But this story is about Sakura. It's all about rescuing, saving Sakura from her tragic fate. Yeah, I'd agree. But I, again, I think that while I, 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 man, there's so many things about Sakura as a character that I think really works in terms of building up this mystery behind her and paying off like the huge dark twist that she is this evil holy grail that's going around eating people and you know everyone in the city is going to be eaten by her in a couple days time because she can't control this power and then you know she just gives in to all the darkness inside of her and truly becomes like this evil incarnate weapon at the end of the film. Like, I think there's a lot of great exploration of her psyche in the film when we're seeing things from her perspective or we're seeing scenes alone of her, like, that she's trying to, in her own way, to, like, keep Shiro out of things as much as possible. Like, in the last film, like, you know that she she knows everything that's going on, but she's being coy with him, so he doesn't know her connection with the Matos and all that stuff, but... Her character is very much defined by all the tragedies and horrors inflicted upon her by the Matos and, like, the grandfather character. And, like, she has been brutally raised. She's been put down since childhood, and she has been abused to think of everyone else's needs before her own. So if she does think about wanting to be happy for herself or doing something for herself, she feels guilt and shame for that. And also because sexual assault and rape play a huge part of it, she also feels so much shame for having desires romantically and sexually for Shiro, which also plays a huge part in her growing anxiety and growing self-hatred. like. Her entire character is just so sad because she has been conditioned to think of herself as worthless and as a tool that is there to serve the Macho family. And if she does not do that, she is a failure and she doesn't deserve to have life. And that is just so heartbreaking. Like, And then she also defines her worked by if she's causing problems for other people like she runs away early on because she doesn't want 
to cause problems for Shiro and tell, hates herself for getting him involved in this her situation. There's this really heartbreaking scene where she's trying to have Shiro back off and not embrace her by telling him that she is not a virgin because she thinks that that means she is somehow of lesser worth as a human being and of lesser worth to him because she has just been raised to think of herself in that way as of a tool of how she is useful to other people. And this film is sort of is challenging. It's not her challenging herself on that, but it's like her struggling to embrace what she wants, but while still trapped in this self-destructive way of thinking and this self-hatred for the person she is, which is of no fault of her own is because of how she has been raised and treated by other people. But it's like even at the end of the film, she is like defining like her value in who she is to other people. Like when she tells Shinji to back off and not rape her, she's like, no, you can't do this because I belong to Shiro. It's not like, no, you can't do this because I have self-respect for myself as a human being. And I don't want to do this with you because I hate you. It's like, a huge part of that is more about, like, her relationship with Shiro. So it's like, eh, it's it's almost there, but it's really heartbreaking to see this character who thinks so little of herself and puts herself down so much that she can only define her work in, like, how valuable she is to other people. And also a person who, because of a history of sexual abuse... It has struggling with her own sexuality and having a positive, meaningful experience with it with the person she truly loves. And, you know, it's supposed to be such an emotional and important scene when she does confess her feelings and desires to Shiro. And the film really does this a disservice by, at several points in the film, sexualizing Sakura, like going out of its way to portray her as a sexual object and to use these scenes to pander to a male gaze rather than being a honest depiction of sexuality that is treating her with respect and really empathizing with her feelings of regard. Like, a huge scene that really stuck out to me that made me upset was when she is crying over embracing Shiro and having finally a positive sexual experience and you see her crying and you see those tears trickle down her body on her breast and it's like that is a shot that is I think too gratuitous I think it's too distracting and it seems there to arouse more than it is to be an honest and raw depiction of what is and should be a powerful emotional moment for this character with such difficult emotional traumas and I struggle with Sakura in this film because on one hand, she is the most compelling part about it. And I really think her character is incredibly fascinating. But on the other hand, I think about the roots of fate as a story, as an erotic visual novel, and how Sakura is literally a sexual object in merchandising, in the meta of the series, and even within the narrative film itself like you have these scenes which are portraying her as that and to me that really makes me uncomfortable and it rose me the wrong way because the story is dealing with a character who in story is a victim of sexual abuse and rape literally rape shinji has repeatedly raped her uh, that is explicitly stated in this film. And I think that is kind of gross. But as a character in of herself, I like Sakura. I just don't think the film does her justice in terms of portraying her story with respect and tact. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> Jeez, I'm trying to even like find a response to that. <laughs> like, this is the thing. I definitely have problems with the sexualization of Sakura as well. Like, I feel if that, if I do have one specific problem with this film, it is that as far as the sexual assault goes, I'm honestly surprised they kept it in. 
it's so uncomfortable to see Shinji like literally assaulting her in this film. Like in general, you hate Shinji so much because they do not shy away from the abuse that he deals on Sakura, like hating her physical abuse. You've seen that before in other uh, incarnations in this franchise, but like in this film, like seeing the sexual assaulting, that is, that just sent, sent shivers down my spine and it just was so gross and uncomfortable. And yeah. at least in that scene, I don't feel I mean, Sakura was sexualized, but at the same time, when you have all those scenes before where you have the sex scene with Shiro, you have the finger licking scene. You have all these fan service moments where Sakura is sexualized. It just makes it all the more uncomfortable when you see that scene and you think about those scenes earlier in the film. At and the same... you feel like the filmmakers really missed the mark here. They really sent mixed messages about how you're supposed to feel about this character. And I don't think you should feel aroused by a character who, and a huge large part of her story, a huge large part of why. She hates herself. It's because she has a complex of believing she does not have any word as a human being because of, you know, being sexually abused since she was a child. At the same time, I feel that scene is meant to be that uncomfortable. That scene, I think, worked as being uncomfortable. It, it, I, like, if I'm, if I'm to give that scene any credit at all, it did it in the most tasteful way it possible for depicting that scene. It wasn't tasteful. You can't call a scene like well, that. Well, I, I, tasteful is a bad word, but I guess the least offensive way of doing that scene. It was definitely the most raw yes, scene that, in, that, in, that, in terms of that's what I'm looking depicting for. that sort of thing. Yeah. Like, I don't know. Like this, this is the thing with me. I feel like, despite those flaws of the film, I feel the highs and the... Other aspects of Sakura's character far outweigh the problematic aspects that are depicted in this film, and that's why I like it as much as I do. I also like the film overall, because there are more positives to the film than are negatives, but it is just, to me, so disappointing and uncomfortable to see how they, at several points, undermine Sakura's emotional arc, and your understanding of the character by sexualizing her. And definitely, it makes me more uncomfortable when you're sitting with an audience oh, who is hollering and getting worked up over these scenes where Sakura is sexualized. And there's even worse out there in terms of theater experiences that I saw on Twitter where people were like literally hollering and whooping or whatever. They were being total immature... And gross about that. That that is a issue that I completely agree with. Like, don't do that in the theater, guys. That's just disgusting. And I know a lot of people are blaming. Oh, that's the that's the fake fandom culture. It's it's really not. It's a bunch of just disgusting people. Like, there there are a lot of very good people in the fake fandom. There's also just going to be a lot of shitty people in the anime fandom that will do gross things or think, oh, it's sexual, it's a sex scene, oh my god, I'm gonna just holler, it's so horny or some fucking shit like that. Granted, I don't know how many of the people in our eyes were literal teenagers or little children. Though that also brings me like a lot of them were either children or just like man children. Yeah. I forget who said on Twitter, but Someone made a joke, like, all oh, these people are fucking virgins that I hope they never get laid in. Oh, yeah, I saw that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think it was Caitlyn. I, I, I think Caitlyn retweeted it. Okay. Or subtweeted it. I don't remember who wrote the original tweet, but it, that was, uh, that accurately described how I felt about some of the reactions to those scenes in the film. Like, like just don't do eyes. that. For one thing, you're just, you're ruining the immersion for everyone else in the theater. And two, it's just disgusting. It's, yeah. it's gross. Don't do it. But again, I really feel that if the film had handled these scenes more tactfully, like more focused on how Sakura is feeling and like really getting to the heart of that and framing these shots in a way that doesn't emphasize 
her sexuality, but emphasizes like her emotional state, there wouldn't have been as much of those reactions. I, like I you in Japan, Japan a normally quiet, respectful culture. You told me that during these was, same scenes, you would get there were people in the Japanese audience that apparently, and this was a whole notorious thing that I've been hearing about for weeks leading up to this, that there was some scene in this film that got the Japanese audiences worked up. And yeah, it was the, the yeah, soccer scenes. It was, like, I, I'm not sure if it was either the Shinji scene or the Shiro scene. If it was the Shinji scene, those people have some serious problems. I have to imagine it was the Shiro scene. Why would it be the Shinji scene? I don't know. There's, there, okay, there's some I will give my audience credit that during the Shinji scene, I think everyone in the theater was uncomfortable. I heard there was someone, like, on a Discord I'm on, one of the dudes in there said that in his theater, there was someone already during the Shinji scene. How could they live with themselves? How do because they... people are like messed up crazies oh. who think that sexual assault is okay. My yeah, God. <sighs> like I, mean, I feel, the, I feel so. Seems like the, I, I'm not gonna lie. Seems like that did make me feel a little embarrassed at times when I was watching this film. I felt like, wow, what am I watching? But then when I understood, oh wait, this. I understand Sakura's character. I understand why this, these scenes are important in context of her character. I, then I was like, oh, no, this is... The idea of this is really good. The, I think the framing and execution was handled clumsily. Yeah, I mean, like, I feel like overall this is a movie that should probably be enjoyed on your own. Or, I guess, experience on your own. friends who you know won't act like who those Who aren't perverts or psychos who like weird sexual assault. Yeah, like, I feel having an audience for this, or watching this with a large audience, hurts the enjoyment of the film. It really shouldn't, though. I love going to these anime theatrical screens because the audience is so Okay, at the same time, we haven't had to go to a film that has this type of content before. That is true. Like, even in Solid Voice, I feel there were a lot of people who weren't into the film, but a lot of them complained after the film was over. Well... You're talking about the most recent Death Island voice screening, because the previous two we had gone to, geez, previous three I had gone to, I was talking with an audience that enjoyed the film and was really respectful uh, during the screening and had a lot of positive things to say about it. But then it was this last most recent one that we went to earlier this year, where it was definitely an older crowd, and I don't know how familiar a lot of this crowd was with anime features, because it definitely seemed like some of the people who had seen it only saw it because it was a event screening, and it was a film that they might have heard of that had some level of prestige or critical claim around it. But it was that screening where it was like, we had the comment, like, when the credits started playing, and someone yelled out, that was the longest movie I'd seen in my life, or something like that, and that made me very upset. But it general, does make me wonder how. What is this dude watching? <laughs> I don't know. It's also that screening was a very upsetting screening because there are a lot of people, even during the film, who were just like talking during it. And when Choka was committing suicide, someone was going like, "Oh, really?" Like they were incredulous that this was happening, and they were rolling their eyes or something. And that made me very annoyed that they were not emotionally engaging or understanding these characters. And it's one thing not to like it, but I just feel like, you know, it's they were people who very... don't try to connect to a film or don't try to understand the perspective of a film. Yeah. Which is sadly a lot of people in mainstream audiences. Perhaps. And I feel I feel like a lot of that's also an issue here in Heaven's Feel where a lot of these people are just seeing these like are seeing like the tonal stuff of sex scenes or like soccer saying she's a virgin and just taking that and saying, Oh, this is funny. Oh, that made me so upset when everyone in the theater laughed during the soccer's when soccer said she's a virgin. Like everyone like, I, I just started biting my lip and I'm like, What's going on? Why why? That wasn't a why? joke. But Man, I think again that how much do I blame on clumsy filmmaking? How much do I, I feel blame okay? On that scene, audience? that scene was not clumsy filming. That was a good scene that the audience ruined themselves. 
my perception of the scene when I was experiencing it in the moment was colored by the fact that the audience was laughing at it. <laughs> so in the moment, I was tricked to, oh, was this supposed to be a humor moment and in, in joke for the fandom? But then, as I watched the film and I understood Cypher's character more, I was like, no, like, okay, that earlier nothing, was so nothing, nothing in that scene is done badly. That, that is emotionally that, okay, hard. That entire <laughs> scene with, like, Shiro walking towards Sakura and her saying all these things to push him away is beautifully done, and the audience ruins it when they start laughing like that. That is all on the audience. Yeah, it was supposed to be an emotional moment that you're. And, to... and it was. It was an emotional moment. Yeah. But they clearly were too oblivious to the fact of what the film was trying to convey. I feel like you can blame. We can blame the film for not effectively conveying stuff. Like in the Shiro, the Shiro Sakura That's all on the film, and it's sexualizing soccer. Here, though, it's the audience not trying to connect with the film. Yeah, I would agree with that. So honestly, not a great theater audience. Yeah, for a pretty good film, but there is really a lot to like about this film again in terms of Shiro and Sakura's character arcs and this whole tenuous type book they walk about trust in each other and like trying to believe in each other, and which ultimately Shiro is being throughout the course of the film really taken down by his own ideals, his own words that he said he would become Sakura's hero but then he really feels powerless in the face of everything he sees when he sees that Saber has turned on him and has become this evil creature when he's really not able to help at all during the fight with uh, evil Saber, an assassin which leads to you know, him losing an arm and Archer sacrificing himself to save his life and all that. You see all these moments, like, just pile up one after another that really breaks down his spirit to the moment where he can be in this vulnerable state of mind where the Elder Mato can manipulate him. And, like, he's also trying to convince himself that Sakura is not what he knows that she is. That she isn't the grail and she's the thing that is going around causing all this death and destruction around him. But like, he really almost surrenders his ideals. He almost does what Archer warned him that might happen if he stuck to his beliefs so strongly without any power, the true conviction to stand up by them that he'd like just lose everything. And throw away everything. And he almost does. He almost makes a horrifying mistake. He almost goes through with killing Sokka. But at the last moment he remembers what he fights for. Who has inspired him. What he really believes in. And he, he stops. And he thinks back to Archer's line again. And he's like, yeah, I'm going to throw it all away. It's not going to throw away like Sokka and my beliefs. He's going to throw away all the feelings of despair and fear he has and not and not given to fear anymore and I, I thought it was a great character arc and with Sakura it also comes back around to her trust in Shiro and like her throughout the film like Shiro is so important to her as a person who has inspired her pretty much the only person in her life who has ever shown her unconditional love and so she is so afraid on losing him, on losing his love. Like, there's this really uncomfortable scene where she overhears Shiro talk with Rin, and Rin tell Shiro's story, very similar to Sakura's story of how she became inspired by Shiro. And she, like, kind of, like, crouches down and clutches her head in, like, complete fear that she will lose Shiro to Rin. Is, which is like doubly messed up because she also wants to reconnect with Rin and rebuild her relationship with her sister as well. So she's worried about losing her relationship with Shiro to her sister, who she also wants to reconnect. It's like very complicated emotions, but which ultimately pushes her over the edge into making some a sexual advance on him and you know, really being direct with her feelings with him. 
But like again, it, that doesn't solve anything because he she then continues to worry about well, this is even earlier earlier in the film where she you know is like struggling with like coping with her sexual feelings, and so she like kind of breaks down in the middle of a hallway because she's so worked up and starts masturbating, and then later she kind of has this psychotic break where it's like almost a second personality talking where she's making these plans of, like, keeping Shiro all to herself safe in the house, never letting him leave. And like, she's like, crippling Shiro so that he can never leave. Yeah, and it's, she's like, who is that talking? Was that kind of made me just now. What, what was that? And it's like, she is really dealing with these dark emotions, like these feelings of possessiveness over Shiro, because, like, she's so dependent on him for love and warmth in a life that is... Just utter misery and hell for her. Like, he is the only bride spot, the only person who is showing her love. And, like, Jiro is trying to get her to have, make her more connections. Like, he pushes her to start opening back up to Rin and, like, call her sister and try and repair the relationship. But it doesn't really go much farther than that. Because, like, she also still has the self-hatred for herself and what she is. Because she, she also knows... Like, deep down, like, she is the evil grail, and she is going around doing all this awful stuff. And so she's trying to keep that a secret from Shiro. But then she's also trying to cope with, like, her inevitable fate as the grail. And then Ilya, like, piles onto those fears by telling her that she won't be able to escape her fate. And if she just hangs around, she'll just cause more misery for Shiro. And, you know, her fate is to die, all that stuff. So that ultimately, of course, she also is very aware of Shiro trying to kill her. Like, I don't know at what point she was awake and was waiting and seeing what he was going to do. But, you know, ultimately, even though he did abandon that plan, like, her confidence in him in that moment is shaken. And, like, she is like, you know, I need to leave because I'm just going to cause more problems. I can't cause more problems than I already have. I have to end this on my own by confronting and stopping grandfather and all that stuff. And then, of course, this all leads into tragedy because it builds up well that she finally is able to make this assertive stand and stand up for herself and stand up to Shinji. And then the cock Shinji comes in and ruins everything. I mean, really, that's yeah. what I was getting to. is like, you know, she stands up to Shinji and says, no, you will not have your way with me. I'm not yours to do whatever you want with. But, you know, she is not able to overpower him without giving in to the darkness inside her. But it's like this powerful moment where, like, Sakura, up until this moment, always thinks of herself poorly, always puts herself down first and not other people. But in this moment, she finally thinks to herself, she thinks that, I wish this person didn't exist, I hate this person, and that awakens the darkness inside her. She kills Shinji, and then she, like, both horrified by what she's done, and also unable to control what she's becoming. She, you know, turns into the Grail. With a weapon incarnate, it's such a tragedy, because this is exactly what her grandfather wanted. It's what her grandfather groomed her to become by abusing her, by putting her in the situation where she was just the most miserable, just so it could all culminate and explode into her becoming the weapon that he wanted her to become. So it's like so tragic in the respect. And again, that's like I said, I really, really think Sakura and Shiro's characters' arcs in this film is incredibly fascinating. They play off each other so well, and I just spent so much time describing it, but like, again, it's, it's worth seeing it in, in the film itself because the experience of watching it unfold and like feeling the emotions, like the performances, of the seiyu cannot be understated like how incredible they are in depicting and capturing their emotional states and like just selling how they're feeling and like the the emotion or catharsis or the tragedy of events that happen yeah like the mainline fate content has always had amazing voice acting like i i can still hear like the voices of fate zero seiyus just off the sound and recognize the character. That's how iconic it is. Mm. But Heaven's Feel really does emote it to a, just a new level, I feel, that we haven't seen from Bates Night before. Especially with Shiro, because I feel in this film, 
he very much is branching out of like his kind of like stable kind of like I feel like usually Shiro kind of just has a standard like flat personality and here you really see him have to struggle with things and that brings out other aspects of his character that we hadn't seen before and that's reflected in the voice acting. Yeah, Shiro really feels like a fully realized character in this film. Like I really understand what his struggle is and he actually does struggle. So I really appreciate that. And in general, I think the film is very well crafted in how it uses its characters, even though a lot of it, you know, your, I think a lot of appreciation for how it uses the characters really hinges on knowing them from a different version of the story first. Yeah. So like, you know, oh, everything involving who Archer is, you know, the significance of him sacrificing himself to give his arm to Shiro. You know, the whole deal with Ilya, you know, all they deal with all these characters first, so you really appreciate what's happening. Yeah, I feel like unless, if you haven't seen at the very bare minimum, Zero and Unlimited Blade Works, I think a lot of the emotional impact of this film will be lost. It's really hard to recommend the film to newcomers because you have to have this clause saying, oh, well, the best way to enjoy it, the best experience you'll have it is if you already know other stories first. I mean, I... I mean, zero, I zero, can... I'd say zero, you should watch it first anyways, but, like, having to go through Unlimited Blade Works to enjoy this is kind yeah, of a tough I can't, task. I cannot recommend Unlimited Blade I can recommend the first half, the second half, less so. But the issue is you need the content from the second half to understand. Yeah, and I can't recommend Alicia, especially since a lot of that first half is very it's, it's It's all really exposition. Exactly. But actually, I can honestly recommend the Heaven's Field films on their own because the core character arcs of Shiro and Sakura are strong enough that that's enough to be invested in the story, I think. Yeah. I don't think you need to really know who Gilgamesh is and like why it's significant that he was killed off so easily or know the significance of, yeah. of Archer more than what you can already interpret. I, I feel like the main crux with not seeing UBW would be just the Archer stuff, and if you can even get, then, if I you can get you past get, that, and you get enough understanding. Yeah, if you can get past that, then I think the film will be fine for you because I feel everything else would be transferred pretty accurately from zero. There is enough you can interpret about like these characters' as histories, like the Ilias stuff. You can even if you hadn't seen other stuff, you know, you can figure out. Like, what her connection to Shiro is, what her history with Kiritsugu was, and all that stuff. Like, they put in enough information for you to piece that stuff together. Yeah, for sure. And beyond that, the film delivers on visual spectacle. Yeah, this this film looks fantastic. The Saber Altar versus a Berserker fight. That is... That's insane. That's an amazing display of special effects, energy blasts, and, uh, like, auras, and beams shot out of giant laser swords, and... UFO table productions usually look amazing. Their TV productions are top tier. This takes it to a whole other plane of existence. It's mind-bogglingly good. It's a pretty incredible fight. Like, they really make great use of the environment at Ilya's castle and just really destroy that, get that involved. Characters are really getting crushed into it. Or the Berserker throws parts of buildings at Saber. Um, yeah, they, I really love how they use the environment. I really think that the theatrics of it are pretty spectacular. The way they... is incredibly impactful and and things look brutal whenever Berserker is, like, punching or kicking Saber. Or, and, you know, of course, there's a lot of dismemberment, a lot of gore, which works because Berserker can regenerate and all that stuff. But, yeah, you know, there's a lot of rapid stuff that makes you go, like, whoa, that's pretty hardcore brutal, man. That's just pretty interesting stuff. I would not say that the fight is, like, the draw of the film. Like, the, the, it the really is What I enjoy most about the film is the Shiro and Sakura stuff, but the fight is definitely an incredibly enjoyable, entertaining part of it. It's like, if you come to fate and you come to Ufotable's fate stuff in particular looking for you know, really interesting, crazy animated fight scenes, you're gonna get that with that 
saber berserker fight in this film and other fight scenes they have in this film scattered as they are and are also pretty yeah easy like archer fight. versus the shadow was also pretty good i thought where oh yeah where uh he does his i am the boat of my sword does yeah, his, like, cool shield says thing. it in english it's pretty great yeah but yeah going off uh just one more comment about that the Berserker stuff, I always find it fascinating how fluidly they're able to animate such a bulky guy like Berserker. Oh my god, Berserker is such a muscular character. They really need to know their anatomy with that character to make him work, and they really do. Like, this is a great team of animators that are at the top of their game. Like, oh my god, muscular characters, so detailed characters like that are just so difficult. But gosh darn, they know their stuff. They've studied up, and they've refined their skills. Demon Slayer Kimetsu Naiyaiba is in the, in the best hands possible. <laughs> uh, yeah, I assume so. But yeah, like, uh, in terms of animation, like we said, it's beautiful. Yeah, music is great as well. Yeah, the ending theme is really messed up. It is a very disturbing song if you look up the translation to it. It hasn't stuck in my head, but I would imagine for this film, it would have to be a very macabre song like from what i can gather from it it seems like aimer is singing it from sakura's perspective yeah um, and <laughs> that perspective is definitely not stable yeah that is a uh, very accurate so for as much as i really am disappointed by certain aspects of this film there's just so much that it does right that i was very pleasantly surprised by it overall i think yeah i mean it's definitely like i think this film particularly was one that a lot of people were concerned about from how they were going to handle a lot of this content and i feel they, they didn't handle it perfectly obviously like you said but it was still done in a way that i feel still stays true to what really makes this arc so great yeah, it's not always a pleasant watch, but it is undeniably compelling. Like, I feel like, flaws and all, this shows out of all the Fate Stay Night routes what Kinokonasu is really capable of as a writer. Mm-hmm. Like, I know both of us really like The Garden of Sinners, and I feel this is the closest you're going to get to that level of writing in Fate Stay Night. Definitely. And... I will also say that of all the fate works I've seen, I think this is the most emotionally invested I've been in a fate story. Because with so many other fake pieces of media, there's always this big uh, meandering parts of it. Where there's a bunch of exposition and characters talking and stuff. And there's stuff like that in this film. But to me, this is the most emotionally charged. And really personal story in the Fate franchise that I've thus far experienced. I feel like because it is the final route of a three-round like story, it takes advantage of the fact that you already knew, know most of the like, history and the lore of the Fate world, and it's just focusing on the characters and the unique narrative rather than the overarching like plot details. Indeed. And because of that, I would definitely recommend it to Fate fans. Obviously, if you're a Fate fan, you've either already watched this or you're going to watch it. But even if you're not a Fate fan, I think I would recommend these films. Because I think this is definitely the best parts of Fate distilled into some really top-notch theatrical films that are relatively short compared to experiencing other entries in the franchise but just as emotionally satisfying and as dense and complete in storytelling that you'll get a lot of gratification and enjoyment out of them yeah i feel like once this phone trilogy is over you could honestly recommend like an order of like fate zero the stay night prologue and then this and i think people would fully enjoy it even if they aren't hardcore fate fans yeah, but, yeah, we'd recommend this film. I don't know if they'll touch upon it again if they do a dub catch with Dreaming. Maybe if we see it with a, another friend and they want to come on the show to talk about it. I will say like, that uh, as someone who's not, like, a huge fan of the Fate dubs, 
the Heavens Field up for the first film was incredibly well done. Yeah. Like, I think it was Bryce Pappenbrook who was playing Shiro. Yeah. He did a great job as Shiro. I think he very much brought a lot more emotion to the character that you usually wouldn't see from him. I'm really interested to see how he handles this interpretation of Shiro in the second film. I think he will have a lot to work with. This is very difficult material, so yeah, I'm definitely curious to see how the dub actors will handle it. Especially Sakura's voice actress, how she'll handle some of the stuff that she'll need to communicate in her performance. It's going to be a a very tough film to dub, for sure. I think so. But, yeah, we'll see if we'll talk about that in the future. Again, maybe if we have someone else on to offer their perspective, we can. I would have liked to talk about this one with Kevin, but uh, fortunately, not able to make that work. He's a busy boy, and he also lives pretty far away from us. <laughs> yeah. But it was cool seeing it with him. Yeah, so. he, he definitely enjoyed the film, and it fucked him up. <laughs> yeah. We've seen both of the films with him, so hopefully the third one we'll also be able to see with him. Who knows? Yeah. But yeah, I think that does it for this episode of Manga Mavericks at Movies, talking about Fate Stay Night and Feel Lost Butterfly. And so, Wheelord, where can the movie people find you? The good people can find me on Twitter at VLordGTZ, where I'm usually just talking about whatever I'm up to, or just talking about manga that I buy and then forget to read. Indeed. Read Wheelord's reviews on All Dash Comic. Oh yeah, those as well. Yeah, my All Dash Comic reviews where I'm reviewing Act Age, Kimetsu no Yaiba, Demon Slayer, and uh, Hinomato Sumo, which you should read because Hinomato Sumo is amazing. It's yeah. amazing. Go read it. Please. 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 <laughs> read the read Hinomaru and check out Vila's reviews. You can also check out my reviews on oldashcomic.com, including a review of Fate Stay Night, Heaven's Feel, Lost Butterfly, where I also give my thoughts on the film in a little more concise manner than we do on this podcast. Basically everything you said here, but in a more structured, organized way. Yes, more structured, (laughs) organized, and a little more clarity on a few points that we mentioned in this podcast. So you can definitely check out that review. I also write other manga and movie reviews for allashtown.com that you can check out as well. You can also find me over on Twitter at LumRamayasha and on Animation Revelation other places as LumRamayasha wherever there's a LumRamayasha that's where you can find me. You can also follow the show Manga Mavericks on Twitter at Manga underscore Mavericks on Tumblr at MangaMavericks.tumblr.com and on our YouTube channel YouTube slash slash Manga Mavericks. Remember to subscribe, watch, and like our content on there. It helps the channel grow. And it also helps if you subscribe and listen to us on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, whatever you call it. Leave us a rating review there. That also helps the show find more listeners and get more exposure. But we're also on any podcast listening platform of your choice, including Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, wherever you can listen to podcasts, that's where you can find us. But if you also want to contact us, you can... Join the Manga Mavericks Discord, or you could email us at mangamavericks at gmail.com. We love interacting with you guys, hearing what you have to say, your thoughts on the Fate franchise, this movie, all that kind of good stuff. You can also support the show by donating to my Kofi page, Kofi slash Lomomiyasha, and that definitely helps pay the bills and pay for manga movie tickets to review on the show, which is a great help. And you can also take our Patreon survey to let us know your thoughts on a potential Manga Mavericks Patreon, what rewards you'd like to see, what tiers you'd like to pledge at, all that kind of stuff. It would be really helpful and informative to set one up, and we'd like to hear your thoughts on that. But until then, this has been another episode of Manga Mavericks at Movies, and we will see you in the next one. And see Kill
Whoa, what was that about?